this week Mudlark is uh, just out of Whaley Bridge and I'm just taking a walk uh, off the main line of the Peak Forest Canal and back round the lovely big wide junction under, under the footbridge, uh, past the nice modern Tesco's, very useful if you're travelling this way. Um, and I'm heading up the old uh, uh, arm, the run up to Bugsworth Basin. Uh, along uh, another little piece of canal built by Benjamin Outram, uh, which which runs up to a different valley uh, where, again, stone and things were, were collected. The spring's really getting a hold now, um, the, although March has so gone out with a lion. We, we've, uh, we've, we've been um, really subject to several weeks now of, of, of uh, wet spring weather turning sharp and snowy very suddenly. It's, it's not been a gentle spring at all. The ground is absolutely sodden. Uh, the, plants are, the plants are getting a hold but they're, they're not rushing away. They're not getting enough sunshine and warmth. The nights are still pretty cold, even, even frosty uh, some of the time. And uh, so we, we're, we're suffering a, a cold, damp quite bleak spring but we're into April now and uh, we should be moving forward and in a, in a few weeks the, uh, uh, the, the abundance will, will be strong and these, these wet snowy days and this damp ground will be a thing of the past. Today I've come for a walk up into Bugsworth which is um, about a mile uh, from Whaley and it's up a, a little arm where, where there's a turn off and a small bit of canal that comes off what we call the main line uh, we call those arms and so there's a little arm that runs up to uh, Bugsworth which is a small village nestling just in the lee of the high peak hills and uh, Bugsworth's claim to fame is actually that it, it uh, was the largest inland port in uh, England for quite some considerable amount of time. So Bugsworth was built in 1800 and was at the height of its activity in 1900 and during that time its role was to uh, transship, to move uh, limestone and lime and gritstone uh, from the, uh, the, the carriages that came down on the plateway uh, and move those onto boats. So it was another transshipment area. So because of the hills of the Peak District, it was necessary to to bring stuff down uh, by other means than boats because it would have meant so many locks to build the canal up into the hills. So that wasn't done. Uh, it was easier to, to build plateways. And if you go and check out my Facebook page, Wild Geese Travelling, I'll show you some photographs of the, the stays that held the rails for the plateways uh, for loading up at Buggy. Um, these days it's been the, um, the, the subject of an enormous and, and, and very loadable uh, restoration. So 30-40 years ago Buggy Basin was, was just a derelict industrial site. The canals had drained and leaked away and the, the, the canal beds were growing weeds and reeds and it was uh, well known as a, as, an old, as a play area by the local kids. But uh, during the, the 60s and 70s uh, the local people took on the 
the job of restoring the whole basin and they've been working on this for 30 years with mostly with volunteers and what's resulted now is, is a quite stunning restoration of, of several arms. You can moor dozens and dozens of boats up here without even breasting them up in pairs side by side and it's now a very lovely destination interesting to explore with uh, the remains of old lime kilns and one two three four five five different areas to moor in plus another couple of areas uh, for for looking at and walking in it really is the most wonderful thing and uh, i i love this this area and its sense of industry there's an immense sense of what used to go on here even though now it's really quiet and mostly what you hear is the running water of the goit going just past it and the traffic on the a6 you can still as you walk along along these these bridges and tunnels there's a whole maze of tunnels and bridges where horses used to pull boats underneath and people would scoot quickly from one area to another and I can imagine that in its day it was heaving and stinking with lime and lime kilns and people rushing about there would have been babies born here I'm just going under a tunnel my voice is going to change that families would have been doing their washing getting their their family life together whilst they were waiting to be loaded or unloaded and it is just a, a, a fascinating area if you're interested in industrial archaeology and boats Bugsworth Basin's really worth a look the herb I'm going to talk about this week uh, is coltsfoot uh, and it's a, it's a funny one because there's lots of things going on around coltsfoot that uh, are a good example of the comparison of herbal medicine in modern times and herbal medicine in the old days so I can see Coltsfoot out of my window. I'll put a picture up on Facebook. Um, and it's a little yellow flower on a funny segmented stem, which gives it the, the name of Coltsfoot because it looks a little bit like a baby horse's hoof uh, on the stem. And it's also called Son Before Father because uh, interestingly, uh, not too many flowers do this. The flower comes before the leaves. So it's a very early, spring herb and it looks a little bit like a dandelion but but not much if you if you look closely and coltsfoot was an important herb in the old days its latin name is tussilago farfara and uh, tussilago is is to cough and farfara means um, uh, far beyond and so th this herb has always been known for uh, getting rid of coughs, sending coughs far away. And in the old days, the flowers and the leaves were used. And we regarded this as a, as a really useful remedy. It bro broke up phlegm well and, and, and got you coughing it. However, in more modern times, uh, we've happened upon a complication with certain plants within our Materia Medica. And that is that some of the uh, constituents of some plants have been shown to cause problems in the human body. And this is of particular concern when it causes problems with the liver. 
And there's a particular class of constituents called pyrrolizidine alkaloids, which have been associated with liver damage in humans. Uh, and this has become a problem uh, in using these particular herbs. Now, the amounts of pyrrolizidine alkaloids amongst the plants uh, that, that contain them varies massively. So some have more than others. And what, one that some people will have heard of, of there being associated problems with, is comfrey uh, and also borage. Now, borage has very, very little pyrrolizidine alkaloids in at all, but others, uh, including comfrey and, and coltsfoot, have a little more. And there's, there's a, a big question mark about how, how safe these pyrrolizidine alkaloids are, particularly because they're cumulative in the body. So we use these herbs much less than we used to, and, and the tradition of using coltsfoot is falling away. Interestingly, um, coltsfoot, particularly in, in Britain, was often used as a her smoking herb. Uh, so it was it was dried and uh, and put in pipes and smoked, and this was a very effective way of treating chest complaints. And in the old days, inhaling smoke was as near as they could get to to how we uh, use an asthma inhaler now to deliver drug to lung. So perhaps even back then they did know that coltsfoot was safer uh, taken uh, in a way that didn't involve the bloodstream and the and the liver pathways but it's a beautiful little herb and uh, a herald of spring but uh, i would uh, definitely advise its most sparing use if you use it at all um but that leads me on to talk about some other herbs that are useful for coughs whilst we're at it having told you that this is a plant with a question mark over it that i can't safely advise you to use anymore um other herbs that are really good for coughs include what some of what I call the kitchen herbs and these are things that you've got in your kitchen every day and uh, and one of the ones that is really useful for coughs is is thyme which is also its latin name is thymus vulgaris uh, and this this herb particularly acts via uh, it, the oils that it that it contains in the plant and as you know thyme has a has a strong aromatic smell, uh, great for addition to, to stews and such the like. Uh, thyme is a really useful antispasmodic, so it helps to ease cough, but it also helps to, to loosen mucus and send it on its way. So uh, whilst you're looking at those beautiful coltsfoot flowers, uh, if, you're look, if you've got a cough, then um, turn to thyme instead and see how you get on with that. You can just make it into a simple tea, just just a third or half a teaspoon, perhaps mixed with something soothing, like a little marshmallow or a little licorice, if you don't have high blood pressure, and you can mix those together. Um, or you can mix thyme, licorice and linseed together and just pour boiling water on them and steep them for a few minutes and, uh, and then strain, and that will give you a comforting cough mixture. It's a big favorite of mine and I'll put something up on Facebook about it as well. So what did I have to eat today? Well I began with um, a cup of rooibos tea in an attempt to give up coffee, failed miserably and had a tiny cup of straight black coffee 
immediately afterwards, but I am working on trying to cut coffee out of my diet if I can, uh, and uh, at least to just hold it to one small espresso first thing. So after my failed attempt at giving up coffee, uh, I had a cup of green tea and my lovely yogurt breakfast, which was homemade organic yogurt with flax seeds and pumpkin seeds and blueberries in it. And then uh, later on, I had another cup of rooibos and a cup of green tea. And for uh, lunch, I had a slice of toast and marmite and an apple and cheese and my green smoothie, which today consisted of spinach, beetroot tops, beetroot, carrots, um, apple, nettle, gallium and a couple of dandelion leaves. Uh, then this afternoon, mid-afternoon, I had my huge bowl of salad, which was a mixture of green leaves, baby spinach leaves, um, lamb's lettuce, uh, some baby lettuce leaves, a bit of purslane, uh, an endive, and an avocado pear. And this evening, we are going to have nettle gnocchi, and that's what I'm going to tell you about next. So nettles, as you've already gathered, are a big feature of springtime foraging. And uh, this afternoon I'm going to make gnocchi, which um, is um, an Italian dish made of uh, uh, potatoes, basically. And so you, you make a, a, a little potato, a tiny potato cake type thing, which you dress with a sauce and um, a perhaps a scrape of parmesan and make yourself a lovely dinner. So um, I'm going to take you through how, how to do this. So you'll need four potatoes and you'll need a good handful, about 100 grams of nettle tips, just the, just the sort of first five leaves or so snipped off the top of the nettles, and an egg, and about just over 100 grams of, of flour. I, I use spelt flour for this. Um, in true Italian style, it's it's best white, but you can use brown, no problem at all. So um, cut the potatoes up quite small and set them on uh, in water to, to boil and cook them until they're well well soft and, and good for mashing. Strain them off and mash them really smoothly, really thoroughly with a potato masher. And then take your nettles. Uh, I, obviously nettles sting so I handle them quite carefully and the way that I usually manage nettles is to uh, put them in a cup and snip them up. So I put them in a small cup and take a, a pair of scissors and I snip them so that they're contained and I don't have to touch them with my hands until I've cut them into into a sort of fine like chopped spinach kind of, of, um, of consistency. And um, I just add these to the mash because I don't like things to be too heavily cooked. But if you want to, you, you can steam them uh, before you snip them and then add them to the mash. So now we've got a pot of mashed potatoes and a cup full of nettles. And we're going to add the nettles into the mash along with some salt and pepper and a little pinch of thyme or fresh parsley or whatever herb you fancy or would, would complement the, uh, the sauce that you're going to put over them. Uh, and then mix the flour and the egg 
sticking into the mash so that you are, are, are smoothly mixing in this whole lot. The, the egg will disappear in, into the mashed potato and then add enough flour so that that's, a, that's, that's coming up into a dough. You don't want it to be wet, you don't want it to be pasty. You're going to add flour into the mixture. Should be about 100 grams, might be a little bit more, um, but start with a little and just add, add in with your eye uh, until, until it, it, it looks right. And then with your hands, um, take it and, and gather it into a little bit of a dough. Um, and you then, when once you've got the dough right, you could, you could divide that into into a couple of of rounds, about the size of your fist, and roll roll out sausage shapes, roll them out into long sausages as though you were doing plasticine when you were little. And the sausage it should be about the the, the breadth of a sausage, a couple of centi centimeters across, and you'll have two long. Uh, pieces once you've rolled out both your both your bits of potato dough into into sausages and then cut those into pieces about 2.5 centimeters around an inch or two fingers width wide uh, to make your your gnocchi so you've now got two sausages chopped up into uh, small rectangular shapes about three quarters of an inch wide and, and an inch long also doesn't matter um, you then you can you can sort of take a, a fork and, and roll these slightly, put some indentations in them. You can either roll them or or you can run a knife along to make a little gash in the top of them. And we do this in order to uh, to 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 create um, a, a space for the the, the sauce to carry. Um, so so the the little dips on on the gnocchi will 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 hold sauce. In them, but they don't need to be very deep or very marked, uh, and um, you'll see them in the in the photograph that I put up on Facebook if if you care to look. So once you've you've made your made your gnocchi to to your uh, to your pleasure, you you should have little um, rectangles with with a little groove or or a few grooves in them, and then all you need to do to cook these is to bring a, a good sized pan. Of water with a little salt in it up to the boil and once it's actually boiling properly rolling boil just drop the gnocchi in and they'll sink to the bottom of the pan and then within two to three minutes they will have risen to the top and then they're done and you can uh, you can just coat these really simply with uh, melted butter and olive oil and a little garlic or something like that or you can make a more complicated sauce and I, I quite like creamy sauces with gnocchi so I, I quite often make a, a, a light tomato sauce perhaps with um, a couple of spoonfuls of cream and a little bit of, of garlic and spring onion and um, some tomato puree and mix that all together very very fine onion or, or sweat it saute it a little if you prefer and just coat the, the gnocchi with that sauce so there you go i hope that's uh, that's clear and uh, that you um, will give my recipe a go because it's one that we use a lot this time of year it's very much like a green pasta uh, where, where, where the italians add spinach to to their pasta and um, with gnocchi we've just added nettles to them and it's a really good way to start out and taste nettles and get used to that that their, their taste because although they're not unpleasant they are unfamiliar so it takes a little while to to get used to the flavor of them and you might love it or it might take you a couple of goes to to really enjoy it so before we go on to any more intense nettle
recipes, I recommend trying the gnocchi. So there you go. I think I want to talk about a slightly more nebulous aspect of um, our off-grid boating life. Uh, there are lots of practical nuts and bolts to living off-grid like solar panels and compost loos and things like that. But uh, particularly with a travelling life, there are, there are other aspects as well. And maybe the most complicated one for, 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 for many people who live different styles of, of off-grid life is the postcode. And uh, interestingly, uh, it's not rocket science to work out that because we move from place to place and we tie up at the side of a canal, we don't actually have a designated postcode. And this creates far more problems than you'd initially imagine. If you consider how many times a day or a week you, you offer your postcode as confirmation of your identity, um, then you, you begin to realise that actually for a considerable number of things, including banking, voting, uh, registering with a doctor, all of these things ask you for a postcode and when you can't produce one, it creates a very nonplussed look on the the official who's trying to deal with you. In actual fact, uh, you have the right to vote and you have the right to medical care um, and you have the right to banking even if you don't have a postcode. But believe me, it makes things so many times more difficult if you, if you don't have one. So there are lots of things that, that become much more complicated when you're on the move. Uh, so taking deliveries, for instance, uh, you, um, we're very glad of the the shops that take deliveries and the uh, uh, the the metal lockers that you see in car parks where we can have packages delivered so that we can pick them up along the way. But that even that can can be a, a little bit slippy because they, they're only there for a short amount of time and if the weather goes wrong and things get complicated you can end up having to catch a bus up ahead because you haven't calculated quite right when your boat's going to be, where your parcel's going to be. Um, some supermarkets are quite helpful at, at delivering and if you give them a, a telephone call, if you ask them to telephone you before they arrive so that you can tell them where you are. They're quite cooperative about delivering, uh, but other, other people are, are much less so about such things. So, so the, the, the lack of address in a nomad's life uh, in modern times is, is extremely complicated and even more complicated if you're trying to establish your identity uh, where you frequently get asked for utility bills and mobile telephone bills don't count as utility bills. So uh, when we, when we're trying to establish such a thing, uh, it, that can be complicated because uh, the sorts of things that are used to confirm people's identities are often not available uh, to, to nomadic folk and particularly people who live off-grid because I take a considerable amount of pride in not having any utility bills but uh, uh, in terms of trying to establish who I am for purposes of legal documents and things like that. It's very difficult indeed. So that's an aspect of, of off-grid living that um, is less romantic and, and more complicated. And of course, uh, although some people live off-grid uh, in, in houses, an awful lot of people are living in, uh, in low-impact 
uh, what's called temporary uh, structures. So they they living in yurts or benders or things like that, or they're living in shepherds' huts or caravans, or like us, they're living on boats. So uh, so for for the vast probably majority of 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 hundred percent off grid people. Uh, the postcode aspect is is a real difficulty for them in terms of legalities and proving identity. So that's it for this week's podcast. Thank you for listening again and bearing with me. Forgive my ums and ahs. I'm working on my self-discipline to get rid of those as I get more confident with this medium. And also please be aware that the app that I'm using is incredibly simple. I'm making these podcasts using nothing but a mobile phone. There's no editing mode and no ability to, to change things around, which is why you get such a lot of ums and ahs. But I'm working on my discipline and I will get better at that. And in a way, I swithered about whether I should try harder and maybe go someplace else and plug in and, and work on the, on the podcast in a different way. But I, I want to give you an impression of off-grid life. And off-grid life is very, very simple. Everything has to be done simply. You, you cut away all the spare stuff, all the flab, all the extras get cut away. And so actually finding this lovely little app, which is called Anchor, is really helpful for me in that it, ma- it makes it possible for me to make a podcast just sitting in the boat using a telephone. Uh, I know it crackles a, li- a lot and I'm again sorry about the ums. The crackling I'm hoping to improve because a lovely person is sending me a Bluetooth microphone to try to see whether that improves things. If you're enjoying the, uh, the podcast and you want to have a look at the pictures that go alongside it or join in with me during the week please do check out my Facebook page. It's called Wild Geese Travelling. That's www.facebook.com slash wildgeese. And you can find me there. There'll be pictures of Gnocchi, there'll be pictures of Bugsworth, and there'll be general uh, chit-chat going on. So do check it out. And I hope you enjoy this, and I hope to see you next week. Bye now.